Welcome to Top of Mind with Concilio Wealth, a show about markets, investing, and financial planning. Join us as we cover current events that are in the news and answer top of mind questions from our listeners. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. This audio may contain statements that may be deemed as forward-looking. Any such statements are not guarantees of future performance and actual results may differ from those projected. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, tax, or other professional services. Welcome everyone to our fourth quarter market commentary. Hal and I are back to talk about the uh, uh, results of the third quarter and our outlook for the coming quarter. So on today's episode, which will be aired on YouTube and a bonus episode in the podcast, we are going to talk about King Dollar, just the strength of the dollar this year and some interesting things to unfold there. The Federal Reserve seems to be done or very close to it with their job in raising interest rates. Series I bonds. We talk about this a little bit more on a on our episode 34 of the pod, which was released on Wednesday, October 11th. Um, but just what yields are looking like there and uh, some commentary that we have on should you cash them out. Market performance year to date. And finally, what is our outlook for the coming quarter? All right, Hal, I'm going to turn it over to you, sir. And um, let's kick us off with King Dollar. Cash is king right now. What's going yep. on in the cash markets? Yeah, cash is U.S. cash is king relative to every other currency, right? In spite of all the naysayers, I think we've addressed that a, quite a few times. Uh, a couple of things: the the strength of the U.S. economy or the persistence of it. I know the Fed is trying to mightily slow us down, um, but couple that with higher rates, also the Fed's doing, and couple that with other geopolitical issues across the world. Right? I know we have our problems, but Again, I don't know what other country you would rather be in <laughs> other than the U.S. at the very moment. Um, I, we're recording this when news of uh, the Middle East conflicts flaring up again. So yeah. um, Israel and, and uh, Hamas is currently in the heat of battle. Um, so, again, our, our thoughts are with all all the people in the Middle East right now. And, again, there's a lot of, lot of people in the collateral damage range of that. So where would you rather be in terms of economics? I think the U.S. is showing strength. I, lots of other issues are coming up from countries around the world, right? So you look at Europe, uh, look at China, and look at um, South America even, right? There's, there's a lot of holes in their economy or potential pitfalls that are causing their currencies to weaken relative mm-hmm. to ours. And because of that, you know, it's been really good to be a U.S. traveler in these foreign countries, and mm-hmm. that's because the dollar is going a lot further than it has been in quite a while. Um, that's because one, our strong economy, and our relatively high, higher interest rates. Right. So those two coupled are are strengthening the U.S. dollar. Mm-hmm. And you commented on this about how the strength of the dollar, or can you comment on how the strength of the dollar has impacted foreign investment holdings in the last year or two? Yeah, I think that the strength and the the appeal of higher yields is attracting foreign dollars from sovereign and individual foreign investors, right, into mm-hmm. U.S. companies. Which, you know, if you're going to buy, you know, the S and P, right, those are predominant those are all u.s companies 
even though a lot of their income is generated overseas, mm-hmm. their their investments are in U.S. dollar denomination. So, so if you like Google or Microsoft or Apple or Amazon, right, you're investing your foreign dollars, converting them to U.S. dollars, and investing in U.S. companies. Forty percent of total revenue. 40. generated by S&P 500 companies comes from overseas. And so I think what you're, what you're getting at is uh, if, I, if I have a, a, a currency, you know, a, a single value of insert whatever currency and another currency, I might find it more attractive to transfer that into U.S. dollars or exchange that into U.S. dollars and then buy a U.S. dollar denominated yeah. stock and I still have some international exposure. Yeah. Even if I just do something as simple as buy the S&P 500, because these companies are earning 40% of the revenue from outside of the walls of, of the United States. Correct. Yeah. And if you're a Canadian investor, you're going to buy the equivalent of what the S&P 500, but it's going to be the S- our US S&P 500. So you don't, I don't know, I don't know if you have to convert Canadian dollars to US dollars to make that investment. But once you're buying that, that US stock basket, right, you're owning predominantly US generated businesses right yeah. i know there's uh the worldly uh, component to it but i think wanting to invest in the u.s right there i'm using the canadian investor as an example but that's that's helping push up our stock market as well mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. our currency and you also commented on how the strength of the dollar has um uh, against foreign currencies has actually propelled the returns of emerging markets in international over the last year. Can you speak a little bit more about why that happens? Yeah, yeah. In a, in a weird sense, the strong dollar, right, has made every other currency cheaper, relatively speaking. So um, if you're Tesla, that can hurt you because you're trying to sell in China. But mm-hmm. the Teslas are somewhat pegged to the U.S. dollar. But if it takes more Chinese yuan to buy it, that Tesla, it's it's seemingly more expensive to a Chinese person wanting to buy a Tesla or not. Um, on the flip side, if the U.S. dollar strengthens, right, international companies are selling or exporting their goods to the U.S. at a relatively, from our point of view, a cheaper price, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, China would benefit from this. Um, a lot of European countries that ship to the U.S., car manufacturers, uh, foreign specifically, like Japanese and um, European cars, they're they're able to sell their products at which much more ease, there's less friction there because their their value of their currency is kind of pegged to what they know, but that looks cheap to us, relatively speaking. Interesting. Okay. Thanks for sharing. Let's move to the Fed. So the Fed has been on the most aggressive rate, rate rises, rate increases uh, in, in many, many years or ever. We tend to think that they are close to done or done. But um, what's that done for cash rates and what are some of the you know, landmines that could be out there for investors? Yeah, well, raising rates was to tame inflation, right? So that's first and foremost is we got to hit the 2% target according to the Fed. Right now, inflation's at 3% if we're just stripping out food and oil. Um, 3%, still high. And I know you're probably screaming in your, your phone or wherever you're listening, where prices are higher, prices are higher. Yes, that's 
that's price level, right? The level of everything has gone up, right? If we're going to get cauliflower, I think it was the last time you checked, it was five dollars <laughs> a head. So I almost texted you the other day. By the way, I'm actually seeing prices come down at the grocery store. I don't yeah. know if you're seeing that where you are, but thirty cents, fifty cents, like things are actually yeah. coming down, and it's not like a sale price anymore because we talked about this a, a couple of weeks ago. Prices were falling, but due to sales and. uh and but this is like actually the sticker that has the normal price that's the always price yeah yeah and it literally is like 30 to 50 cents lower on a lot of the items that we buy which is your typical you know pantry items that and fridge items correct. that everybody has correct yeah so i want to make a difference between the level of price gone up right <clears throat> that that journey of the price going from let's say a dollar to a dollar 50 mm-hmm. that 50 cent difference is the inflation mm-hmm. right so now we're looking at a dollar 50 good and if it stays at dollar fifty, there's zero inflation. That's what we mean by that inflation target. So if it goes to dollar fifty one, you're still angry because you're used to paying a dollar for that thing. Now it's a dollar fifty one. Yeah. But what we're describing is that penny difference. It's the rate of growth yes, that's trying to slow. Growth. And so I think what we all hope is that prices actually go down, yes. which would be deflation, which is actually a bad thing. But we want the rate of inflation to slow dramatically. Yes. Correct? Yes. And I'll get into why deflation, right? Just look at Japan. Why, believe it or not, their rates are negative, right? If you had $100 in a Japanese bank, you're getting negative 0.01% on your money. So somehow they're taking money out of your account to make that work, right? So I think. It's like a Bank of America fee. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but it's driven by the Bank of Japan. But it's so knowing that you're going to pull your like never deposit your money while that's happening. You're going to spend it or invest it somewhere else. Right. That should hopefully spur economic growth, which inflation is a byproduct of that growth. Right. Mm-hmm. You get deflation when people are unwilling to buy your good. Mm-hmm. Right. Let's say you're Pepsi and you raise prices and people stop buying Pepsi products. You're going to start lowering your prices, lowering your prices, yep. and all of a sudden, you're not viewed as a premium brand or whatever the case is. We talked about Lululemon being hesitant mm-hmm. to lower their prices. Deflation, I know this sounds weird, lower prices is not good for an economy. And I think that's the bottom line of what we're trying to say is uh, why the dollar strong and the economy strong, the high, rates are higher relative to Japan, the economy is rebounding, but rates are negative you could see the imbalance between the currencies there. And so all of this has led to people's savings accounts, maybe not your your big bank savings accounts, but think of like high yield savings accounts and money markets and this type of thing. All of this has led to the U.S. is paying some of the highest interest rates in the world, and we have the highest credit quality in the world here in the U.S. And so, yep. um, you know, historically you would assume if, if there's lower credit quality or, you know, higher chances of default, that institution or country would have to pay more in interest in order to to attract capital uh, that's not the case right now the u.s is paying some of the highest interest rates in the world and their currency is incredibly stable yeah <clears throat> let's shift over to that for a moment so so high yield savings accounts cds money markets i mean we're touching in the fives sometimes in the mid fives um what has this done for for savers and what are some of the the landmines that are out there with some of these money market instruments if the Fed is maybe near their end of their rate hiking cycle? Yeah, so to kill that that inflation target, right, of 3%, they want to get it down to 2%. The Fed 
is keeping rates higher for longer. As Chris described, they were hovering around 5%. You could probably find rates around 5.5%, but that trickles into savers, yes. Like if you have money in the bank, you're getting a pretty nice yield if you have a high-yield savings. Mm -hmm. But on the flip side, if you're a borrower, you most likely are paying 7% on a car, right? Mm -hmm. You're paying 7.5% on a mortgage. This is not a good time to be borrowing the money, but that's the point is the Fed wants people to slow their spending and they're incentivizing people to save more and disincentivizing them to not spend more, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that, that's what we call it, the lag effect where these hikes have six to you know 18 month lag where if I'm raising rates today, I won't, probably won't see it for nearly two years the impact of it, especially with mortgages, right? The only new mortgages that are cycling in, that only counts for like 5% of the mortgage activity or the homeowner activity, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Not every single house in your neighborhood is going to turn over and everyone's Mm going to get 8% Mm -hmm. loan, but it's a small portion, right? I don't know how many houses in your neighborhood are for sale. There's very little in mine. I I think I was seeing quarter over quarter, it was actually down in terms of listings and close, closed sales and stuff. It was down, I don't know, 5%, 10%, just, just from the last quarter, yeah. which is, could be seasonal, right? That's common, but I don't know that that seasonal adjustments actually happened in the last few years. Like nothing has slowed down over the holidays. Yeah. And let, okay. And let's go back to the saver side of it where there's, yeah. there's a big benefit for saving, right? Or being able to spend without tip tapping credit. And I think that's been great for people who have money in the bank, uh, earning 5% if they could find it. And mm-hmm. we'll get to that, like the struggles we've had today, trying to find something that consistently pays that, right? I was going to say, should we talk about that? I think we should. Um, <laughs> okay. So, let me, yeah. yeah. Let but, me just set this up real quick. So, so as you can imagine, we have a lot of clients reaching out to us going, how can I earn more of my cash? You know, I've got a Chase account or a Bank of America account and I'm earning, you know, 0.01. Um, how, how do I change that? And so, you know, there people are inquiring about money markets or CDs or these types of things. Um, we had this one instance where we were trying to buy CDs for two and three and four year periods to try to lock in longer. And how, what did we find in that? Next to nothing. Next to uh, nothing. It was pretty bad. Yeah. So CDs aren't, aren't something you could pluck out of the sky, right? Because a bank has to commit to paying you on that particular certificate of deposit, right? Let's say you want $100,000. And Bank of America, and I, we're not speaking hypothetically, Bank of America does not need your money. I've yet to yeah. see a Bank of America CD, outstanding CD. Yeah, somebody um, please send in a picture when you drive <laughs> by the, the B of A that has the, the giant sign out front off. that says 5% lock for two years. They don't need your money, so they, the, they aren't the offering The manager that, right? took that poster down and ripped it up. Yeah, um, that's they right. Don't need, they don't need new deposits. The, the amount of money market flows that have come in all year, even this year on a good up market has been record breaking, right? So, so when, when we pull, or, yeah, sorry, carry on. So yeah, when we pull our a list of available um, CDs, meaning banks are willing to lend, borrow this much in deposits, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I think we haven't seen so little demand from the bank side. And we're only seeing regional banks on there. Only regional banks, yeah. So it's it's very few big banks, like none. Um, none from J.P. Morgan or Wells Fargo or yeah, yeah, yeah. None of those. So it's regional banks that are are 
sort of needing your money, but at the same time, regional bank lending has dramatically come down. And so yep. that's why volume of CDs has gone down. And volume is just this, banks have reserve requirements. If they're lending a lot of money, they need to hold money in reserves exactly. to back those loans. Well, um, if, if, if I'm a bank, XYZ Community Bank, I'm not just issuing an unlimited amount of 5% two-year CDs. No, I might list not good for business. a million bucks yeah. and then it fills up because I just need that million bucks in order to, to be the collateral on the loans that I just loaned out, right? That's how banking works. Yeah. What we're finding when we, when we pull these is even if you go to like fidelity.com and you look at CD rates, you can get in the fives or mid fives all the way out to a 10-year CD. No, you can't. Like it says it on the website, you cannot buy that CD. It doesn't actually not exist. Not without strings, correct, yeah. Or the strings are, it's callable. And can you explain what a callable bond or CD means and what are you seeing in the marketplace there? Yeah, so think of them as the bank as a borrower. They're borrowing money from you, right? So mm -hmm. what they, they're putting a call feature on is I have a right to pay you back your money at before the maturity date. So mm -hmm. let's say I buy a three-year CD, I'm gonna put a call after year one because I know when I'm, I'm so three, a bank. three-year CD, I, yeah. five and a half percent. You're feeling good. You bought it. You're like, I got this three years, yeah, five and a half percent, but it has a one-year call on it. Yes. In 2024, because mm -hmm. I'm a bank, I know my forecasts for interest rates. I'm forecasting they're going down. I'm going to mm -hmm. plug in a call feature after one year and not be on the hook to pay you 5% when the market is suddenly down to 3%, right? You, you basically get refinanced out of your own CD. You do. Yep. Yes, and you have no choice about it. And yep. yes, the majority of CDs that we see available right now, and this is the day after the Middle East conflict, we've had 20 new CD issues hmm. from a country full of banks. There should hmm. be thousands of these things available. We talk CDs just because they're, they're kind of one step away from a money market, right? You've got a bank yeah. account, and then you've got a money market, and then a CD, which is a bank product, it's FDIC insured, but it's very simple. You know, you, you buy the product, it pays you interest, the, the product turns back to cash, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And otherwise you get into bonds and that's government bonds, corporate bonds, all these other things, which are slightly different sort of instruments because you often will pay more or less than the par rate. So if it's a thousand dollar bond, you might not buy it for a thousand and get a thousand back. You might buy it for 987 or 1,020 and then you yep. get 1,000. So anyway, that, that gets more complicated. We're just talking CDs because they're a very straightforward banking yeah, product. Yeah, and I think um, taking a picture of a CD rate that your bank is advertising is a bit facetious, but it's kind of, it is the truth. If, I bet if you're gonna go to your Bank of America and the banker puts a interest rate sheet in front of you, you're not gonna see those 5%. You're gonna see what they call a preferred rate and you're going to see maybe 2% for, for a two-year CD. Because wow. especially the bigger the banks who have taken in all this money since Silicon Valley this year, one, one thing they don't need more of is more cash. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So you're seeing that kind of reaction, even though you're seeing on uh, Bloomberg or CNN that rates are so easy to earn 5% on. You know, me and Chris wish you luck. Okay, let's move to Series I bonds, the most popular topic of, <laughs> of what was year. that, November of 2021? Yeah. When that rate jumped to, was it 7.12? Uh, 9.62. 9.62. Yeah. 
Yeah, but no, it was no, seven no. before 7. it was nine. 1, yeah. yeah, it peaked at nine point six two. Yeah, so let's just unpack this quickly. And 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 for our listeners, we are talking about this more on episode thirty four of the pod, which airs October eleventh. Um, and if you're a subscriber, it'll be right in your inbox and on your phones. But if you're not a subscriber, well, you should become a subscriber and then it'll just be on your phone. <laughs> uh, but let's just talk briefly about series I bonds in part to just educate what's going on and a slight infomercial to listen to our episode thirty four. Yeah, well, Series I Bonds, we've been on this since uh, the date Chris mentioned, November 21st of 2021, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the rate hadn't quite peaked, but everyone was saying, hey, these new bonds, they weren't quite new. They were decades old, right? But yeah. they, didn't, they didn't pay a yield because inflation was nearly non-existent in the U.S. for 40 years. So they, they a product being tagged to inflation... We don't have inflation, you suddenly don't have yield. But when you have inflation, like you did in 2021, you have yield again. Mm-hmm. And over the last 18 months, I think, Chris, right, I, we had a lot of interest in these types of bonds. And I think we were happy to at least talk about it with uh, clientele, where where else were you going to get a pretty stable bond that was paying yeah. nearly 10%? Yeah. And I think that the people that got in November of 2021, right when the rate spiked, so the, the rate went from 3.54 to 7.12. And I think that's when the media jumped on it. Yeah. And everybody saw these articles. We started hearing about it. The people that bought those have done pretty well because it yeah. went from 7.12 to 9.62 for the next six months. Then it went to 6.89 for the six months after that. And then now uh, for the six months after that, so May of 2023 to October of 2023, 4.3, and the new rate has not yet been announced, but when it is, it potentially would be lower. So anyway, if you got in November of 2021, you probably did well. Our point is just that those rates are coming down. That's that's actually a good thing because inflation's coming inflation's down. Inflation's down, yeah. But we just wanted to highlight it. Yeah, and I think uh, we use that topic on the back of CDs because CDs are the topic du jour now, and yeah. we're saying how hard it is to access a full 5% if you want to go out further than a year, especially at a big bank, the, the same folly was with iShares or iBonds because they were so appealing in in a environment that wasn't great for bonds, mm-hmm. right? And now CDs, money markets will, money markets are probably worse than CDs because they reset every seven days, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the appeal there, yes, Definitely attractive. Try to get those yields while you can on your cash, but not consider cash that should be invested, right, as a substitute to buy these CDs like, and think of it as a long-term investment because they're not – we know rates are coming down. It's a matter of when. I think they're going to be sooner than a lot of people expect. Yeah. And I think the, the reset on I-bonds have surprised people how fast they came down, right? And it, People only enjoyed that 9.6% for six months. Good point. So there's a couple things that I want to highlight here before we move on. So there is a lot of historical data on when the Fed goes through a hiking cycle, what it does to interest rates, and then what happens after the Fed ends their hiking cycle, and, and how does that work with bonds. And I think the key that we want to highlight here is that when you buy a a very, very short-term bond instrument, like a money market. House says that's a seven-day instrument, meaning they're literally buying seven-day bonds. 
that mature in seven days, which means that that rate will reset every week. <clears throat> and so when rates start to fall, that rate will start to fall in lockstep and immediately. Whereas if you can buy a longer dated bond, one year, two year, 10 years, you have that rate locked for a period of time, assuming it's not callable. Now, what that does is uh, if you bought the bond today at 5%, if you can find it, uh, and rates then go to four or three or two, your bond that's paying 5% is worth more because it's paying an above market rate. So what I want to kind of set up here and just frame for our listeners is if the Fed really is near their the end of their hiking program for this cycle, when you look at forward looking 12 months, so from today forward 12 months, the rate of return on cash, so like high yield savings accounts, money markets, uh, historically is about four and a half percent versus if you look at just core bonds like the AGG or the AG, um, the AGG would be an ETF, uh, 11.5% is the return there. And that's in part because you're earning more on interest because these bonds are paying more and in part because rates fell, which made the value of your bonds go up because your bonds yeah. were paying an above market rate. So that's point one. Point two is um, when the Fed rate is currently higher than inflation, which it is, for the forward-looking 12 months, returns on cash or money markets is 5.1 and core bonds 7.5. And finally, everyone's favorite topic, when the yield curve is inverted, problem with that is that means that short-term bonds are paying more than long-term bonds. So what do we all want to do? Buy the short-term bonds because they're paying more, sometimes by a couple of percent. Yeah. But that pulls us into the reinvestment risk when those bonds are maturing, which could be as soon as seven days. Forward-looking returns on cash only about 4% versus core bonds 7.8. So yes, all of this is pointing to longer-term bonds. Um, our point is just if the Fed is really near the end of their rate cycle, we just want to caution people with sort of the, the mirage of these high-yield savings accounts right now, yeah. which are paying a lot, but that likely won't carry on forever. Correct. Final point here is when the Fed stops hiking, rates start to adjust immediately. We talk about this a lot on, on, on this podcast and a lot on our shows, priced in. The market tries to anticipate what happens in the future and price it in to current pricing. Um, when the Fed comes out and they raise rates, for example, well, sometimes interest rates don't move at all because it was anticipated, therefore it's already yeah. priced in. So the market will soon start to price in. In fact, maybe they already have due to this conflict that we now have that's erupted. Uh, the market has seemed to have priced in, the Fed might cut sooner, which is interesting, right? Um, rates tend to fall really fast once the Fed stops hiking because the market tries to price in that. Um, one month after the final rate hike, the average fall in yield is about a quarter of a percent. Three months after the Fed stopped hiking, the average uh, yield fall is almost three quarters of a percent, and five months after, it's a full percentage point. Yeah. So really gets priced in very quickly, which is, again, interesting and just something to be aware of that if somebody's trying to skip from their money market account into a CD or a bond, that yield might fall off really, really quick once the Fed does reach their end of their uh, rate hiking cycle and once that gets fully priced in. And I think to be clear, we are not trying to burst the bubble of that 5% riskless return. It's just, you got to think ahead to, on this stuff sometimes, mm -hmm. right? If you fall completely in love with I-bonds, you get the I-bond rate of 4.3%. 
what a year and a half after the fact. Yep. It, it I think it's setting up for disappointment if you're so hyper focused on one type of investment over like a more diversified portfolio. Great. Okay, let's move to stocks. Our final topic for today. So we'll do a quick review of where stocks were last year, uh, where they are so far this year, and then finally, what is our outlook for the coming quarter? Yeah, we bring up last year just simply because heading into this year, last year was so tough that no one had any optimism coming into this year. Um, I'll be, I'll point out one of our uh, year-end uh, newsletters where we said buy new large-cap growth not because we thought the the economy was going to be on fire or we foresaw AI or anything. It's just because valuations. We mm -hmm. said buy blue chip growth stocks and they were cheap at the time simply because those very stocks were down 33% at the end of the year uh, to end the year in 2022. So their toward pace in this year was simply just kind of gaining back what they lost in the year previous. Mm-hmm. All right. So if you're looking at it in a year in year out bubble, yeah, you're missing the forest for the trees because you're focusing on one good year on the back of one bad year. And if you level those two out, they're pretty flat in mm -hmm. terms of what the performance was. Right. So heading into the year, there were zero people saying that the, the S&P was going to be up, what, 12 percent on the year. <laughs> and there were a lot more people who were saying get watch out, right? The recession's coming. Uh, I go to cash or buy safe investments. And where are they? They're still singing the same tune, but no apology about missing, you know, a pretty good 10 month rally. Mm -hmm. And I'm closing, I'm including September and October or sorry, August and September, because August, September, we have data going back to 1945 from the wall street journal. Uh, they broke down all the months, of performance in stock market, right? The worst two months in a calendar year, believe it or not, were September and August. September being the worst for some reason. Hmm. Um, and on average... Good we're through that. Glad we're not recording this in September. <laughs> yeah. I know, <laughs> rough month. Yeah. But on average, uh, October, November, December, in that, that grouping, um, which we're in right now, have historically been the best performing months in the year going back to 1945 again with all the new stuff that's coming out in the last two days i don't know if it's history is going to repeat itself but it does tend to rhyme and if this it wasn't even a correction so uh the s p sold off maybe seven percent from its peak in late july yeah. to now so corrections considered ten percent i think we already had that in in march typically you actually should anticipate a 10% pullback at least once a year. 15, yeah. Right? Yeah. So maybe we're done, maybe we're not. But again, any any reason to sell should be more plan-driven than event-driven. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's, that's sort of the year in review. And um, let's hit a couple of hot-button topics. Government shutdowns. Um, I know we averted that. In the short term, what's the data say on government shutdowns and how does it impact markets? Yeah, um, again, good luck trying to time government shutdown reactions from the market. Uh, the, yeah. we, we have another chart that looks at the data going back to the last 17. I can't count that high. 
17 shutdowns. Yeah. Um, apparently, it's pretty common with our uh, government, and it sh- probably shouldn't surprise listeners. So uh, the last one was in 2019. The market was up 11%. Uh, the, the one before that, 2018, the market was up 2%. In 2013, the market was up 4%. The last time a government shutdown had a negative market impact, and again, we don't know if it's going to be related to government shutdown, was in 1990. And it's pretty mixed since then. Um, the last time we had a severe drop, and I'm, I'm, I don't really consider this severe, it was 1979 when it was down 4.5%. So not a lot of trending data. Again, government shutdowns are never fun, um, but... They don't really impact the markets from our point of view. Hmm. And finally, our outlook. What's what's going to be top of news, we think, this quarter? And um, how's it going to impact either sentiment of our clients or markets? Um, well, we, we are expecting, I guess we tend to expect upward tilting markets because that's just how history has worked out. But uh, this heading into 2024 is unique because it happens every four years it's the the presidential elections i think we're going to see a lot of rhetoric a lot of finger pointing right the party out of power is going to say how crummy your life is and the party in power is saying how much i improved your life in the last four years mm-hmm. um unfortunately they don't have too much impact in on our day-to-day or even our dollars right so um our newsletter has <clears throat> data tracking back to 1928 and whether Republican or Democratic president, uh, the the S&P returns have been pretty random. Some parents, some presidents have good returns. Broadly, they mostly do because the economy has been growing since 1928. But um, I think I think people weigh too much of their investment thoughts on presidencies and uh, politics, and. <clears throat> I think we're trying to prepare everyone for a lot of rhetoric coming up. I feel like this year, our our every other podcast, we talked about interest rates and the Fed, and I feel like next year we're going to talk about uh, politics, not in the not in the in the political sense, but the hey, it probably doesn't matter, and, <laughs> and kind of deflecting a lot of the if this person wins or that person wins, what is it going to do to markets? Uh, there's just so much data that um, A, it's just hard to get a lot of things done in a four-year period to really materially change economic outcomes. And uh, oftentimes the data would suggest the economy that that president inherited is much more of a predictor on those economic results or the stock market results than the economy that is perceived that they created. Now, of course, in their um, campaigning, they will always, whether it's a good market or a bad market, they're going to spin whatever the most positive thing is, whether it was job growth or we, you know, look at the stock market or whatever. But historically speaking, when you really cross-reference those comments with actual data, presidents don't really have um, an absolute growth or fall of really any any sort of aspect of the, the stock market. Yeah, I think you should be paying more attention to the Fed, as fun as that sounds. It's just they have more of an impact on our economy than than Joe Biden or Donald Trump. Yeah, fair. Well, consider that everyone's first reminder of this message, and we'll be back in two weeks to say that same thing again. Unfortunately, Uh, you're going to hear that a lot from us. (laughs) Um, Okay, wonderful. Any any final thoughts or anything else you wanted to cover? 
Uh, real quick, emerging markets. I think um, I think that's been a thorn on every investor side, at least if if they were properly diversified. And I'm talking from an institutional sense, right? Because every every money manager out there is saying you should have emerging markets. Valuations are cheap. Uh, their middle classes are growing, right? And we're speaking India, China, South South America, mm-hmm. where yes, the demographic shifts make sense. But we have yet to see any rewards for all the risks that those those regions pose, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I think there is um, a need to heart, need to look at it long and hard uh, what your exposures are in and whether they're a great diversifier. Again, we we could talk about diversifiers, right? You don't want everything moving up up and down at the same exact time, right? That's not a good portfolio because if they're all moving up and down at the same time, might as well just buy one thing and forget about it. Yeah, but, what's the point in being diversified yeah, if they're all yeah. doing the same thing? So that's where emerging markets came in, where if America wasn't doing good or international developed markets weren't doing good, here comes emerging markets to save us. But they've always, they, you know, I'll talk to China specifically, they've always found a way to shoot themselves in the foot. And I think I think it's hard to look past some of the, the, the big warts for some of those investments. I just saw the uh, Evergrande in the yeah. news again. Yeah. And I feel like when that all broke not that long ago, it was big news and, and U.S. markets even reacted to it. And I see an article about it periodically and it's like, nobody cares. So yeah. it's it, yeah. I think that could be a big issue, but it's just not really top of mind for anybody anymore. Yeah, for background, uh, Evergrande was uh, a big Chinese construction developer that over-levered and over-built, right? I, you could see Chinese ghost towns of brand-new uh, brand constructed towers of residential um, buildings that are unoccupied. So, so one, if you can't, you can't stay in business with that kind of model where you build and no one pays you for the Don't building. Don't sell. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So that that has a lot of economic um, ripple effects in China, and I think that will, I think that will be years of unraveling, unfortunately for for a country like China where they've invested so much in their construction companies, and they've overdid it. And I mm-hmm. again, it's, we've done it, so not to really point fingers at China, but again, they're kind of repeating some of the mistakes that other countries have made. All right. Well, that's it for today's summary. And uh, this will be posted with our quarter four client newsletter. So uh, this will be posted to our our website um, in the market commentary section. You'll have access to this market brief as well as the YouTube and the uh, bonus episode of the podcast. So we hope this was helpful for everybody. And uh, just let us know if you have any questions at team at conciliowealth.com. And as always, if you like this, please like and subscribe to our content. We have lots more stuff that comes up, comes out. We have a podcast that we release every two weeks, which is Top of Mind Commentary. We have a, a YouTube channel where we cover uh, uh, two to eight minute videos on super helpful things, backdoor Roths and mega backdoor Roths and uh, the new Washington State long-term capital gains tax and all these sorts of things. And we, we our objective with that is to, to teach people these little little nuggets in two to eight minutes. That segment is called Concilio University. So thanks everybody for tuning in with us today and we'll catch you again soon.